Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 3. Road Trip. Chapter 14. We catch the very next flight out of Iceland. This takes us to Copenhagen. From there, we get a plane to New York, and then another to San Francisco. Although we're sitting in adjacent seats, Nadia and I talk very little during the flights. Nadia sleeps most of the time, and her waking hours are spent working, tapping away steadily on the keyboard of her laptop computer, noise-cancelling headphones firmly in place, eyes locked onto the display. We talk whenever the trolley comes round to serve food or drinks, but it's nothing more than polite chit-chat. I occupy myself by getting reacquainted with the details of Cube. Although I'm a frequent user of the currency, it's been a long while since I've taken a look under the hood, so to speak. Most users of Cube are completely unaware as to how it works. All they really care to know is that it gives them a convenient means to pay for things securely. People on opposite sides of the world can transfer money to each other instantly, without having to go through the time and expense of converting money from one currency to another. Cube's proper name is, by the way, Convergent Cryptocurrency. That's quite a mouthful, so Yilmaz often used the shorthand C to the power 3. Others simplified this to just Cube, and that quickly became the universal nickname for the currency, so much so that the currency's logo was changed to use a cube motif. I start my research with the original academic paper that Yilmaz wrote. It's not a long read. The entire design is succinctly described in a scant ten pages. Yilmaz released software implementing Cube less than six months after publishing the paper. The code was released under an open-source license so that anyone could use it. This also meant, just as importantly, that it could be rigorously reviewed in order to make sure there were no errors. No such mistakes have been found in over a decade. Yilmaz's last software update to the code came exactly one year after the publication of the paper. Soon afterwards, Yilmaz stopped posting online. There was no final goodbye message from Yilmaz. The last message was a boringly mundane message about the reissue of the SVG version of the Cube logo. Nothing in that message hinted that it would be Yilmaz's last. Despite Yilmaz's silence, Cube went from strength to strength. It's now the cornerstone for all electronic commerce. It's integrated into virtually every consumer device on the planet now. Behind the scenes, many banks use it to conduct their interbank transactions. The first ever real-world transaction involving Cube was to buy a vegetarian pizza. The pizza restaurant accepted 10,000 cubes in exchange for one large veggie feast pizza, thin crust. At today's exchange rates, 
those units of cube would be worth over 30 million US dollars. I turn my attention to a video recorded in the early days of Cube's popularity by Dan Roberts. Roberts is one of the guiding lights of the engineering group behind the internet. Without his contributions, the internet simply wouldn't work as well as it does. And his glowing endorsement of Cube won it a lot of new followers. I tap the play icon on the screen of my band and the wizened face of Roberts appears. A man well into his 70s at the time of the recording, Roberts's famed energy and passion for technology remain undiminished by his advancing years. He appears to be in the basement of a building somewhere. There are packing crates and shelves everywhere. Then I remember that he must have recorded this video during his self-imposed incarceration in the Venezuelan embassy in Washington. He had sought sanctuary there during the clampdown on hardcore crypto that saw hundreds of developers and technologists face criminal charges for refusing to add government backdoors to the cryptographic software they maintained. Roberts ended up spending nearly three years in the confines of that embassy. Before I dive into the technical details, begins Roberts, let me say first that Cube is magnificent. It is a towering achievement of intellect that tames, nay slays, multiple dragons of computer science, cryptography and economics. Do not imagine for one second, he says sternly, wagging his finger in a headmasterly way at the camera, that the simplicity of its design means that it was simple to create. Cube's achievements are threefold. 1. It is truly distributed, meaning that it has no need for a central point of trust, such as a bank or government, and also means that it is impossible for financial authorities to shut down or control. 2. It is genuinely secure, using nothing but well-proven, pre-existing cryptographic algorithms. 3. All transactions are entirely anonymous. Neither the payer nor the payee are traceable. To have accomplished one of these objectives would have been an achievement. To have accomplished two, exceptional. That Yilmaz manages to achieve all three is nothing short of genius. Roberts pauses for a moment to take a couple of breaths, then continues. Up to now... Every currency, be it physical or electronic, has operated with some form of central point of control, some kind of sponsoring organisation, a bank or government typically. This central point has to perform several important functions, chief among them validating transactions to make sure that no one tries to spend money that they don't have or attempts to spend the same money twice. Cube has no need for such a trusted centre. Trust instead derives from the Cube system itself, the software that each of its citizens run, and the protocol that connects their machines together. This lack of central authority makes Cube very difficult to regulate or control. Cube is a libertarian dream come true. 
For the first time ever, we have a scalable electronic payment method that lies completely outside government control. So, the trust lies in the Cube community, those users, usually referred to as citizens, who run the core software. You don't have to be a citizen to use Cube, but anyone can become one. Just download and install the free core software and leave it running on your computer. The Cube citizens number in the many thousands today and will, I expect, steadily increase with time. These are the people who store and maintain the global ledger, the list of all validated Cube transactions. The canonical global ledger is, whichever version the majority of citizens hold to be correct. Now let's talk about the more casual users of Cube, says Roberts. These are the people who use Cube for making payments, but do not actually run the central Cube software. The protocol allows this type of user to number in the millions, or even billions. These users need only store their electronic wallet on their device. Roberts pauses for a second and then continues. Let's now talk about anonymity, he says. The ledger is completely public. Anyone can download it and see all of the transactions that it contains. So how can a user's privacy be preserved? Yilmaz has gone to considerable length to ensure this. First, the transaction history, which is stored within each transaction, is represented as a set of zero-knowledge proofs. This means that all that needs to be stored about each transaction is that it was verified as being valid. The amount of the transaction and who were the parties involved in the transaction remain secret. This makes it impossible to build up a graph of linked transactions. Second, cube addresses are designed to be used once and once only. But to explain that, we need to understand how cube wallets work. The cube wallet keeps track of payments to and from the user, and from these transactions is able to derive the amount that the user has available to spend. Access to a user's wallet is protected by a password. If someone guesses your password, then you can have all your cube savings taken from you, so make sure you choose a good quality password. Stored within the wallet is a pool of public-private encryption key pairs. Whenever you want to make a transaction, either as the payee or the payer, one of these key pairs is selected. A one-time cube address will be generated using the public key. It is this address that will appear in the ledger against a transaction. An address will look something like this, says Roberts, putting up a card in front of the camera. It is typically 35 characters in length, though only 34 of those characters are meaningful. The first character of an address is always a capital C. The wallet keeps track of which key pairs have been used and generates new ones regularly in order to ensure that there is always a supply available for use in transactions. By using a fresh address for each transaction, the user's anonymity is preserved. This means 
that even if you were linked to one of your transactions via an address, the other addresses you have used, or will use in the future, cannot be linked to you. Roberts pauses for a moment. So that's Cube in a nutshell, he says. A payment system that is distributed yet secure. Authenticated yet anonymizing. It deserves to be classed as the first great invention of the 21st century. But finally, what of its creator? This Mehmet Yilmaz, a mysterious stranger who delivered us this gift from the gods and then retreated back into the shadows. Roberts shakes his head. I do not know. All I can tell you is that I am not Yilmaz. Roberts theatrically looks to his right, then to his left. He leans in towards the camera. Rumour has it, he whispers conspiratorially, that Yilmaz owns the first one million cube units ever created. At today's prices, that means that he, or she, is sitting on a fortune worth around $10 million. I pause the video and look out through the window at the clouds outside. Light twisted strands of cirrus in tortoise. Assuming that Yomaz hasn't sold them, those million units a cube will now be worth over $3 billion. And if the value of cube continues its relentless rise... Yilmaz will be the richest person on the planet within the next decade. Yilmaz might have chosen not to receive public recognition for the act of creating Cube, but he or she is likely to have been rewarded very well financially. Chapter 15 Sunday Evening It's late by the time we arrive back in downtown San Francisco. As soon as we're out of the BART train, Nadia spots a CCTV camera and insists on pulling the hood of her baggy hoodie over her head. It's not exactly a feminine look, but it certainly obscures her facial features. We walk the short distance from the BART station to the apartment on Sutter Street. Faser lets us in. Welcome back, she says to me, giving me a quick hug. She turns to Nadia and holds out her hand. It's nice to meet you, she says. Yes, I had thought to email ahead to let her know that Nadia was travelling with me. Nadia shakes Faser's hand. It's nice to meet you, Mrs Whitting, she says. I hope that I can be of some help in finding your husband. Faser nods. You're very kind, thank you. Call me Faser, please, she says. We sit down, and I and Nadia recount everything that happened in Iceland. Faser listens intently, leaning forward, especially when Nadia describes our escape from the two hoodlums. We finish our story. Faser sits back up again. I've news too, she says. I found someone who saw Max on the Friday evening. Wow, I say, that's great. Where? At the bus station, Faser answers. I was down there this morning, showing Max's photo around. 
One of the drivers remembered Max getting on his bus for the drive up to Santa Rosa. Max's British accent stuck in the driver's mind. I flatten my band from my wrist and lay it on the table so that Faiza and Nadia can see it too. Iris, I say, give me the list of scheduled stops for buses going to Santa Rosa from San Francisco. I'm sorry, Mr. Jenkins, replies Iris. I'm not quite sure what you mean. I sigh. The programmers behind Iris claim that she is 99.9% .9 accurate when it comes to speech recognition, but that one word out of a thousand that she does get wrong is more than a little irritating. At least in this case, I know exactly what the problem is and how to avoid it. Iris, I say again, give me the list of scheduled stops for buses going to Santa Rosa from San Francisco. Iris, for some unknown reason, seems to be completely incapable of understanding my British pronunciation of the word. This time, Iris acknowledges my command and sets to work. A map of the Bay Area comes up on the display of my band, together with a set of points where the bus stops. Blasted software agents, I grumble to Nadia and Faser. They're trying to make me speak like an American. According to Iris, the bus leaves San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge and then heads up Highway 101, stopping at the towns of Petaluma and Roanoke before terminating at Santa Rosa. Unfortunately, the driver doesn't remember where Max got off, Faser says. It could have been any of the major stops. He thinks he would have remembered if Max had asked for the bus to stop anywhere else. This is fantastic news, I say. How about tomorrow we hire a rental car and take a trip up the 101 and ask around? Good plans, says Faser. Nadia nods in agreement too. I tap my earpiece and ask Iris to make the necessary booking. Oh, I just remembered, says Faser. Inspector Lister phoned earlier. The police have found your laptop. Excellent, I say, delighted at this unexpected news. How? It was handed in to a police station, says Faser, by someone who found it in a dumpster in a back street of the mission area. Your business card was taped to the underside, so they were able to identify it immediately. Great, I say. I'll go pick it up before we head up the 101. I glance up at the clock on the wall and realise just how late it's getting. It's now past one o'clock in the morning. I didn't sleep much on the plane, and I can feel my body screaming out for rest. I'm sorry, I say to the women, but I'm dead on my feet. Can we call it a night? With now three people in the small flat, sleeping arrangements become complicated. Faser has the bedroom, of course, and I relinquish the sofa bed to Nadia. I make do with a foam mattress plus sleeping bag on the kitchen floor. It's not much, but after having spent the past two nights struggling to sleep in the confines of economy airline seats, being able to stretch out fully horizontal feels luxurious in the extreme. Chapter 16. Monday Morning Despite the late night, I'm awake well before 5am. Rather than get up and disturb Nadia and Faiza, I prop myself up on the foam mattress, 
unwind my band and continue the research into the creator of Cube. I download everything publicly written by Mehmet Yilmaz, forum posts, emails and social media messages. In total, it comes to a little over 60,000 words, all written over a period of about 15 months. Reading through it all, I see that it's written in the same careful language that Yilmaz used for the original paper. The spelling and grammar is meticulously correct. Yilmaz isn't one for wasting words. There's a brevity to the writing style. I read through the early months of forum posts where Yilmaz patiently explains the design for Cube to a mostly sceptical audience. Bit by bit, I see how Yilmaz is able to win them over through careful explanation and, once the source code was available, through reference to the actual implementation of Cube. As I read through the posts one by one, I get a vague sense of something being different between them. However, I struggle to identify what it is exactly. It isn't until I re-display the texts of the posts in a fixed width typeface that I spot what it is. The spacing around punctuation marks. Sometimes Yilmaz has single spaces after a full stop. Other times it's a double space. Sometimes there's a space before an ellipsis. Mostly there's not. It's the same for M dashes. Occasionally Yilmaz will put a space before and after the dash. Most of the time, though, there isn't. The weird thing is that the variation only occurs between postings, never within. Yilmaz is consistent with this use of spacing in any single posting. Assuming the differences are accidental, why would they vary only from posting to posting? Maybe they aren't accidental, I think to myself. Could they be deliberate? Some form of hidden messaging? I've read a little about steganography, the art of concealing messages inside something innocuous. The concept dates back all the way to the Middle Ages, but gained fresh popularity with the advent of the computer age. Media files, both audio and video, are popular choices for use with hiding secret messages due to their overall size. It's easy to disguise a textual message in a high-definition video file, as the video is already a gigabyte or two in size. No one will notice the size of the file going up by just a few thousand bytes. However, the amount of information that could be conveyed by simply varying punctuation spacing would be tiny. It's just a few bits worth of data per message. What could be usefully communicated? And who would be the intended recipient, I think to myself? Given the multitude of ways that exist to send information securely encrypted, why would anyone choose this approach to communication? I ponder the significance of all of this for a while, but fail to come up with anything conclusive. Then Iris whispers in my ear that it's 7am. I decide to go get some fresh bread for breakfast. I pull on my clothes and head outside. By the time I return to the flat, both Fazer and Nadia are up and dressed. As we're eating breakfast, there's a ring of the doorbell. I get up and open the door. It's Inspector Lister. Good morning, says Lister. He holds up my laptop. I was passing and thought that I would return this to you. Thank you, I gush. I didn't think I'd ever see it again. 
Whoever stole it, says Lister, apparently tried to sell it in a couple of bars around Mission. When they failed, they threw it in a dumpster. Oh, I say, somewhat deflated. Whilst I'm glad to have my computer back, I have to admit to feeling a bit miffed that no one wanted to buy it. That's a bit like a thief breaking into your house and stealing only some of your jewellery, leaving the rest lying on the floor. Do you feel worse about the stuff that it was stolen, or that they thought that so much of your collection was not worth stealing? I recover my composure. Thank you for returning my machine, I say. It's very kind of you to drop it off. My pleasure. Despite what you might think of SFPD, he says, glancing towards Faser, we do try to go the extra mile for our citizens. He hands me a form acknowledging return of the device and I sign it. Lister gives a nod of acknowledgement to Faser and Nadia at the breakfast table and then leaves. I close the door and return to the table. I guess we were all wrong about the theft, I say. It must have been an opportunistic thief looking to make a quick buck by selling the laptop on. Nadia picks my laptop up and inspects it carefully. It's a sleek, all-metal design with a curved, extendable screen. Your thief must have a truly terrible sales pitch if they couldn't sell this on, she says, handing it back to me. I start the laptop up and run some diagnostics to check that it is still functional. Everything passes, even the checksum tests that I use to make sure that no files, system or data, have become corrupted. I close its lid, give it a pat and return to my breakfast. It's good to have my computer back. After breakfast, I excuse myself and go into the bathroom to shave a weekend's worth of stubble from my face. As I lava my face in preparation for a wet shave, I hear Faser and Nadia chatting in the other room. So what do you do for a living? asks Faser. I run a small security consultancy, answers Nadia. It's based in Poland, but we do freelance online security work for clients all around the world. Tom tells me that you and Max were working together, says Faser. What was the work? Security analysis, answers Nadia. I do business with many companies who want security audits of their systems done how secure they are to hacking threats, resistance to denial of service attacks, that sort of thing. Max agreed to do some contract penetration testing. He did an amazing job. I've never known anyone to be so thorough or creative in their testing. When I got funding for this new project, Max was top of my list of candidates to work on it. He agreed to get involved to track down Mehmet Yilmaz. Why are you interested in this Yomaz person? asks Faser. Do you use Cube yourself? queries Nadia. Yes, I do, says Faser. I have it on my phone, mainly for making small purchases. It's so much easier than carrying cash or cards around. No one knows who really created it, continues Nadia. The purported inventor, Mehmet Yomaz, is just a pseudonym. No one? says Faser, surprised. I never realised it was a mystery. She pauses for a moment, considering. Does it really matter? she asks. Absolutely it matters, responds Nadia emphatically. 
The millions of people who use Cube every day deserve to know the truth about who created it and their reasons for doing so. Isn't it enough that it works? questions Faser. No, it's not, says Nadia. There are too many puzzling questions about Cube that just don't have answers. Such as? asks Faser. Well, for one thing, replies Nadia, it's too perfect. How can something be too perfect? asks Faser. The Cube specification was published more than a decade ago, says Nadia. With the exception of a couple of minor tweaks, all made within the first couple of months of operation, this specification still describes the implementation of Cube that exists today. Nothing has had to be changed, nothing added or taken away. So? asks Faser. Isn't it good that it was defined correctly first time round? It is good, says Nadia, but it's also hugely unlikely. How could something so groundbreaking be defined to perfection at the very first attempt? Faser is silent, so Nadia continues. Any work of complexity, and Cube is complex, make no mistake, has issues when it is published. Oversights, gaps in logic, outright flaws, you name it. These issues get corrected later on, based on the feedback and lessons learnt from actually deploying the work into the real world. With Cube, there was no correction phase. The specification was published, and then a few months later, the software actually implementing it was released. The software worked. Flawlessly. On tens of thousands of computers across the world. For one person to achieve this feat, for a solution that spanned the fields of economics, distributed computing, cryptography, mathematics, makes them very, very exceptional. And... After release of the software, why did Yilmaz just disappear? Why step away from something that would be a crowning glory in anyone's career? Maybe they value their privacy, says Faser. Maybe they do, agrees Nadia. But they should still be accountable for Cube. It's too important to the world economy for its author to be able to step away entirely. Every day, Billions of dollars of economic transactions are being conducted using Cube. Cube is having an immense effect on the economic processes of the world. Some are good, some are bad. Don't you think that we deserve to know something about the person who created it? And why they decided to create it in the first place? Faser is quiet. She has no more answers to Nadia's questions. Frankly, I don't either. Iris whispers in my ear that our rental car has arrived and has parked itself outside. I hurry to finish my shave and then step back into the living room. Right, ladies, I say. Who's up for a road trip? Chapter 17 We drive across the bay and into Sonoma County. Soon we leave the urban sprawl behind us. It's been a long while since I've been in this part of Northern California and I'd forgotten how pretty it is. It's a fine day, with the turning leaves on the few trees that have survived the drought looking spectacular in the autumnal sun. Nadia doesn't have her licence with her, and as Vesa prefers not to drive, I volunteer to do the driving. While I could let the car's auto-drive do most of the work, I prefer to drive manually. 
I've had a few less than positive experiences with auto-driving cars. The problem isn't so much when they are driving themselves, which they do flawlessly, but with my driving once I've taken back control. I'm far more prone to making mistakes. Given that I'm driving on the wrong side of the road, I don't want to do anything that further increases my chance of an accident. We drive along the picturesque Highway 101 towards Santa Rosa. Our first stop, after about an hour's driving, is in the beautiful small town of Petaluma. At the risk of being condescending, I'd even describe it as quaint. We stop at the bus station and ask around, showing people photos of Max. We visit local shops and cafes and put up a few posters. We visit the local hospital, just in case Max has been admitted. We even stop off at the Twit Studios. Max, like me, is a big fan of their podcasts, especially Security Now. Despite opening a far bigger multi-studio facility on the edge of town a couple of years back, the staff are as welcoming as they were when I visited the Twit Cottage a decade or so ago when I was a student. Unfortunately, despite the warmth with which we are greeted, no one recognises Max's photo. We continue up the 101. Our next port of call is Ronat. It's much smaller than Petaluma, and so we don't spend as much time there. We ask around, we put up posters, and then we leave. We then make our way to the bus's final destination, Santa Rosa. This is the largest town in the region, the administrative heart of Sonoma County. We go through the same process as before. We visit the bus station, we put up posters, we ask around in shops and cafes, and we talk with lots and lots of people. We visit both of Santa Rosa's two hospitals. No one remembers Max. Despite the lack of fresh leads, I'm not disheartened. There's one other place that I want to visit. Sebastopol is just a couple of miles west of Santa Rosa, and quite near there is a cyber commune that I remember Max mentioning once. Might he have gone there? It's the late afternoon when we pull up outside the isolated new Morningstar commune, having traversed a long and meandering dirt track road. Named in honour of the famous 1960s commune that was located nearby, the NMC is a converted farmhouse set high on a hill, overlooking large fields of what was once grazing land. The livestock is long gone now. The decade-long Californian drought has turned the fields into little more than arid scrubland. However, the farmhouse still looks much as it must have done in the days when the place was a working farm. The commune is famous for its open-door policy, freely accepting anyone who wants to visit for however long they want to stay. Hackers from all over the world are drawn here in order to collaborate with some of the brightest of their peers and contribute to whatever ongoing projects take their fancy. Many open-source projects owe their origins to work started here. I know of a couple of security researchers who always spend a month or two at the commune ahead of the DEFCON event in Las Vegas, polishing up their presentation. We get out of the car and look around. There seems to be no one around. The back door of the farmhouse is open, so we decide to go in. Inside, we find ourselves in a large kitchen. A heavy wooden table dominates the room. 
a large six-hob cooker and refrigerator take up most of one wall. It's a very typical farmhouse kitchen, except for the bank of enterprise-grade routers mounted in a rack beside the entrance. Sitting at the table, his back turned to us, is a man. He's eating a bowl of cereal with one hand while continuing to type speedily on a laptop computer with the other. Muted strains of music leak from the chunky music headphones clamped over his ears. Excuse me, I say. The man continues to type on the keyboard, oblivious. I tap him on the shoulder. The man jumps up, startled. The bowl of cereal goes flying. It seems certain to crash onto the floor, but Nadia manages to catch it one-handed and returns it safely to the table. Nice reflexes. My, you scared me near to death, the man says. He's younger than me, perhaps mid-twenties at most, and speaks with a southern accent. He's dressed in jeans and a flannel shirt. I'm so sorry to disturb you, but we're looking for someone, I say, pulling a couple of photos of Max out of my pocket. Have you seen this man? He may have visited here a week or so ago. I pass the photos over. The man studies them closely. He's my husband, says Faser. His name is Max. Max Whitting. He's been missing for ten days now. The man pauses, looks at the three of us, and then shakes his head. Can't say I recognise him, he says. But wait here. I'll show the photos to a couple of my colleagues here. They might know your friend. He disappears through the other door into the rest of the farmhouse. We wait in the kitchen. To kill time, I go over to the routers and examine them. They're all high-capacity, state-of-the-art systems, costing at least $10,000 each. The commune clearly takes its internet connectivity very seriously. Faser looks around too. Someone forgot their turn on the washing-up rotor, she says, pointing at the sink, which is piled high with dirty mugs, plates and cutlery. After a few moments, we hear footsteps and the man reappears. This time he has company. The other man is taller and probably slightly older. He's sporting a scraggy beard. Hello, says the taller man. I'm Tim. I look after things here. Richard showed me the photo of your friend, he continues, holding up the picture of Max. Let's talk in the office. He leads us through the door into a corridor. There's a door immediately on the left. Inside is a small office with a desk and a chair. Well, to be more precise, I infer the presence of some sort of desk. It is buried in papers. Its top is overflowing with books and papers and further stacks of material are piled up against three sides of it. Beside the desk, on the carpet, are several desktop PCs together with a UPS box. Network cables go from the machines into a hole in the floor that someone has made none too tidily. Three of the walls are taken up with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. The bookshelves are packed to the point of overflow with books and files and magazines. The other wall is dominated by a large, multi-paned window that looks out on scrubland that was once one of the fields of the farm. Tim sits down at the desk and starts typing away furiously on the keyboard of a laptop balanced on one of the piles of papers, seemingly oblivious to the computer's precarious placement. 
He gestures to us to sit down in a couple of the seats. Fraser and Nadia take up the offer and sit. As there are only two seats, I elect to remain standing. Tim pauses typing several times, as if waiting for something on his screen. Finally, he stops typing for good and looks up. He holds up the photo of Max. How long has your friend been missing? he asks. About a week and a half, says Faser. He disappeared a week last Friday in San Francisco. Tim sighs. Well, I'm sorry to say that you've had a wasted trip out here. I've been IMing with the other residents here, and no one remembers him visiting. He passes Max's photo back to us. Are you quite sure? asks Faser desperately. The man shakes his head. Absolutely sure. I meet with all our visitors in order to explain the house rules, so if he had visited, I would know. I haven't been away from here in over two weeks. Faser's shoulders slump in disappointment. I decide that there's no point in wasting more time here. Well, thank you for your time anyway, I say. I pass my business card to him. If Max does turn up, we'd greatly appreciate you letting us know. Of course, Tim says. You'll be the first to know. We head back to the car, deflated at having reached another dead end. What a day, says Faser, slumped in the back seat. The euphoria of the night before has been replaced by frustration at today's lack of progress. Give it time, I console her. Santa Rosa's a pretty big town. We should stay here tonight and see whether tomorrow we can turn up any more sightings. We head back to Santa Rosa and find a motel close to the 101. Faser and Nadia agree to share a room, with me taking an adjacent one. My bedroom will double as the base of operations. After freshening up at the motel, we decide to head downtown to get something to eat. We take the car and park just off Railroad Square. There, we find a small Italian restaurant. Despite the sun having long since set, it's still a surprisingly warm evening. We elect to sit outside in the restaurant's garden. The only source of lights are the flickering candles on each of the tables. The town is quiet at this hour, the only real sound being the chirping of late-season insects. We give our food orders to the waitress. Nadia and I agree to split a bottle of wine with our food. Faser prefers to stick with a soft drink. I wonder what caused Max to travel all the way out here, muses Faser. Maybe he wanted to meet with someone, I say. Someone who either lives out here or who didn't want to meet in San Fran and its wall-to-wall CCTV cameras. Does he have any friends or associates in this part of California? asks Nadia. Faser shakes her head. None that I'm aware of, she replies. I suddenly remember Max's unusual phone. I reach down to my bag and pull it out. Did you give Max this? I asked Nadia. Yes, that's one of mine, answers Nadia. They're specially made to my own specifications. They have additional encryption built into them to avoid any chance of calls being listened into. Another question pops into my mind suddenly. Does the word Kronos mean anything to you? I ask Nadia. 
Nadia thinks for a moment. Not that I can think of, she answers. Why? When I was looking through Max's backup hard disk, I found a recently created folder named that, I answer. It was full of academic papers on a wide variety of topics. Encryption, parallel computing and the like. Nadia shakes her head. I don't recall Max ever mentioning the word to me. Perhaps it was something to do with his day job at Dorg. Maybe, I say. I'll have to ask Buckeridge the next time I see him. Our plates of pasta arrive and we eat in near silence. By the time we finish our food, it's getting late, so we decide to head back to the hotel. Faser insists on driving due to my consumption of wine. By the time we get back to the motel, it's past eleven. I'm tired, but my brain is still buzzing, trying to figure out how Max, Cube, the Bratva, and this part of California might all fit together. I tell Nadia and Faser that I'm going to take a stroll to clear my head before turning in. I could do with a walk too, says Nadia. Do you mind if I join you? I don't mind, and we set off. Faiza heads into her room for the night. We stroll through the tree-lined suburbs of Santa Rosa. The streets are very quiet. There are only a few people around at this late hour, mostly dog walkers giving their pooches one last walk of the day. A cool breeze has sprung from the west, rustling the leaves of the many trees that still have their foliage in place. We walk along in silence. I'm going over the events of the day in my mind, again and again. What else could we have done to get a lead on Max? We know that he got on the bus for Northern California. Why can't we find where he got off? Max is very lucky to have a friend like you, says Nadia suddenly, interrupting my musings. Someone who's willing to drop everything and travel halfway round the world to look for him. We've been friends for a long time. He'd do the same for me, I'm sure, I reply, surprised at the compliment. Nadia's been a pretty sceptical member of our party up to now. Not exactly critical, but hardly an enthusiastic supporter either. How long are you prepared to go on searching for him? asks Nadia. I ponder the answer to her question. I haven't really thought about this much. I've just been taking each day as it comes, not trying to think too far ahead. As long as I possibly can, I finally answer. I have lots of outstanding holiday that I need to take, and my savings are in pretty good shape as well. I won't be quitting on Faser any time soon. How long have you known Max? Nadia asks. Since university, I reply. We were in the same year and studied the same computer science degree. We've kept in touch after we graduated and Max emigrated over here. I was his best man at the wedding. Nadia turns to me. Faiza told me that the police think that Max's disappearance is due to an argument between the two of them. Is that plausible? She asks. I shake my head. Absolutely not, I say. Max would never walk out on Faiza, even for a couple of days. And most definitely not when they're expecting a baby. Nadia nods her head. She leans into me, standing close. Max is very lucky to have a friend like you, she repeats softly.
I grunt, suddenly unsure where all of this is going. Nadia leans in still closer, her head towards mine. I feel her breath on my lips. I tilt my head and our lips meet. The kiss only lasts for a second or two. We move apart again. I look at her to judge her reaction, but her eyes are already semi-closed and she's moving in for another kiss. This one lasts far longer and is swiftly followed by a third, longer still and considerably deeper. We suddenly feel a strong urge to be somewhere comfortable and horizontal. We race back to the motel. That was episode three of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at kronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 international license.